I would get people criticize me. People on my Instagram and my YouTube would criticize me and go, let the boy be a boy. Let the kid be a kid. I'm like, I don't take advice from people less successful than me. So I'm not going to take advice from you. Thank you so much. Welcome to Turning Profit, a podcast for people that love real estate. Learn the business models and skills that professional real estate investors use to make money and build wealth. Visit turningprofit.com for a wealth of investor resources. And now, here are your hosts, Pete and Heather Reese. Heather, we're live. Yay! Well, I guess this will be recorded Not when you see it. <laughs> but welcome to the Turning Profit Podcast. We've got a very special mm -hmm. guest on with us today. His name is Pace Morby, but you probably already heard that name. You probably know all about him. But we're going to try to dig into some deeper topics with Pace today. Maybe some things that he hasn't talked about. We'll see. Ooh, so I Pace, love that. how are you? I'm great. Life, life is perfect. I, I um, am excited. I want to see if you can extract things that nobody else has ever been able to extract. <laughs> I'm really good at random questions, so challenge accepted. Ooh, yeah. I like it. Yes, All right, cool. She is. Yeah. <laughs> so where are you today, like physically? I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, the greatest city of all time. It is so amazing. And the real estate grows here like crazy, which is awesome. I like your um, airport has lots of connections to cool places. Just throwing yes. that out there. Do you have a family of your own? Yeah, um, I've got a family of my own. So my wife and I have been together for 14 years and we, we've been married eight of those years. And we have a, a boy who's 15. He's not my biological son. He's He's her biological son. His name is Asher. Uh, just started his YouTube channel. He's doing Turo and Airbnb, and he just did his first flip as a 15-year-old, which is pretty cool. And then I've got two daughters. It was really challenging for Laura and I to have babies, and the doctor finally told me, look, there's nothing wrong with you guys except, for, except Pace works too hard, and you've got too many things going on. Of course, you're not going to get pregnant that way. You got to relax and let your body do what your body does. And so I had a daughter four and a half years ago named Corbin. And had another daughter 10 months ago named Unday. And we'll probably end up having two more kids over the next three or four years. Your son, he's already interested in real estate. Do you see like um, that inkling in the girls already? I mean, they're totally young. I don't expect your 10 month old to be telling you that she wants to buy a property yet. But yeah. is the little one peaked? Like, you know, is she interested? Does she listen already? You know, this is an interesting conversation because my son doesn't necessarily have the same brain as I do as an entrepreneur. It's like all day long. I have 50 different ideas and I have to pick and choose which one that I want to go focus on, right? My son's not like that. My son is more, tell me what to do and I'll do it. He's really yeah. good. He's very obedient. He's calm. He helps around the house, but he doesn't come up with ideas easily yet, right? And I don't think he's really struck something that he's super excited about. And so I get people that criticize me about this. They say, so why do you push your son into, into real estate? And I go, because that's what I wish I knew when I was younger. I wish my dad, instead of teaching me how to paint baseboards, taught me how to order baseboards for, so somebody else could paint them, right? And I, I wish my dad taught me delegation and those types of things. So really what I'm teaching my son right now is not so much about real estate investing. It's more about how to delegate and build a business so that when he does grow up, maybe real estate is the thing he's obsessed with, but it, it might end up being something completely different. But I'm just utilizing real estate as a backdrop to teach him how to run a business, delegate, because that's the opposite of what I learned. I learned in a blue collar family, you do everything your freaking self mm -hmm. and you don't delegate and you don't build an actual business. And ultimately you have a big hobby that you think is a business, but you don't own the business. The business owns you. That's what I learned. And I had to really break that mindset when I was in my early thirties. So 
that's what I'm really trying to teach Asher. Now, Corbin, man, I don't know. I just love being around my daughter so freaking much that she travels with my, my wife and my kids travel with me. Last year, I spoke on 71 stages and we traveled all over the country and I take my wife and kids with me and I promise myself I'll never put, put my daughter Corbin or my daughter Monday in a traditional school. They'll learn business from day one. They won't know anything other than business. And so when they get older, they'll go, this is normal. Making money, creating wealth, doing these types of things is normal. Whatever avenue they choose to go down, I want to make sure that I have a big enough business that they can either A, choose to have a portion of that in terms of, I want to be in charge of that division, or B, hey, I want to take this and duplicate what you did, dad, on my own, completely separate from you. I just want to create those type of opportunities for them that I didn't have. But it's all hard work. It's all, it's like my son does his own. I, I go, look, you're doing the demo. Anything that you can do yourself, you're doing the physical stuff yourself because now you're at the property doing something so that you can delegate the guys that are also at the property with you. So it's not just him cracking the whip. It's him being there leading as a 15 year old and um, then being in the ambiance of the house and noticing th- the things that are going well, the things that are going poorly so he can be there to, de- to delegate. So it's kind of both ends of the stick, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, we, um, I mean, it sounds like you're setting the foundation for whatever they choose to do. They're going to have the necessary tools to execute it, but go ahead. I know what you're yeah, going to say. Well, I mean, uh, you're preaching to the choir, uh, <laughs> with the way you're raising your kids for sure. We've got three girls ourselves and it's just, uh, in our, in our previous business, we were traveling 150 days a year, all with our kids as a whole family. They haven't been in traditional school for some time and we're doing the same thing with our business and teaching them in that way. And you know, they may go off on their own path and decide they want to do something completely different. But I think this type of education is far more valuable than the stuff they teach you in a traditional school. Super interesting. Like I get, so Asher's not my biological son, so I can't make all the decisions for him. Right. So we, I drop him off at school a couple of times a week. My wife primarily does all that stuff, but I'll drop him off to school. I'm like, man, who am I dropping my child off to for eight hours today? Craziness. You know, nothing against school teachers. I loved my school teachers. They were great. The people who are making forty, sixty thousand dollars a year are the ones that are spending more time with my child than me. And so I think just my kids being around me, like my Asher, my son, when he's not in school, he'll he used to. And I used to go on real estate appointments. I don't do that now. I have a team that does that. But Asher, it was really fun watching him. He's a little bit of an empath, so he really can see what's going on in people's lives, and he's more of a listener than a talker. And I would take him on appointments with me for distressed property owners. And I would walk out of these houses and I'll go, why did we not buy that house? Or why are we, what do you think we're going to get this under contract? What should I do? What do you think the next step is? And I would listen to him dissect these individual adults' lives from a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old perspective, sitting there in this living room, listening to two adults talk about adult things. I would get people criticize me. They'd say that people on my Instagram and my YouTube would criticize me and go, let the boy be a boy. Let the kid be a kid. I'm like, okay, well, I don't take, I don't take advice from people less successful than me. So I'm not going to take advice from you. Thank you so much. But I, unfortunately, because I don't, Asher's not my biological son, I can't make those decisions on his behalf, but I can just do as much as I possibly can. So when he turns 18, he goes, okay, personally, I think I'm living the rich dad, poor dad life. I feel like my son has a rich dad, me, the step stepfather. And he has a, uh, his other father who he'll never watch this podcast is all about go to school, go get a degree, get into marketing, make $60,000 a year and work your way up and retire at 72 years old with maybe half a million dollars to your entire name. Right. Right. And so it's this like tug of war between parents all the time. And it's really interesting 
I just trying to do the best I can. And amidst the criticism of the people that don't get it, I'm going to do what I, I think you and I both are on the same page about is teach my kids how to make wealth from day one. And it's not about him not having a childhood. That always kind of shocks me. Like our daughters have always been involved, you know, if we're when we were doing more traveling, writing a story, like it, they knew it was work, but it was fun. And I was teaching them, you know, like our goal was that you work should still be enjoyable. Like yeah. you shouldn't get up every day. Like the most important thing is you're doing something that you love. And I don't understand that. Like, let him be a child. Don't let him be a child because he's still having a childhood. He's spending time with a parent that loves him. He's doing these things that are exciting. He's seeing things he wouldn't see. He's having a childhood. And I'm sure that that wasn't like 24 hours of your day. You know, you guys probably you know, stopped and did other fun things along yeah. the way. It's just, there's no, these extreme views are just kind of shocking. But then again, that's, you know, the internet age. Yeah. I mean, you can't make everyone happy. No. You know, and you stop it's trying. It's absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we like with Asher, we, we took him on a five month road trip. This is back in 2020 when COVID hit, I was like, let's jump in the Airstream. So we went and bought, I, I taught Asher, let's go buy an Airstream. So I taught him how to buy a, an RV on creative finance. He was with me in every one of my appointments and we bought, we bought this deal and we go travel the Western United States for five straight months and live in the RV. But what we did is I was like, let's go get on podcasts. Let's go meet with students. Let's go do meetups. Let's go do this stuff. And then, you know, we're at Yosemite, we're at this, we're at that in between all of those things. And right. it's interesting to watch. I think more and more like the homeschool kids 15, 20 years ago were the weirdos. Yeah. And we yeah. all grew up thinking homeschool people were weird. And now I get older. I'm like, man, the homeschool people are freaking cool. Like they actually... They actually know how to make money. Their kids, their parents have actually taught them how to balance a checkbook and what does that mean and creating value to the workplace and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, again, can't make everybody happy. You just got to create your own kid. Yeah. It, and the world's changed, you know, it's simply adapting to the new world and technology that's out there. Some yeah, of these things that are, you know, our 12 year old is doing now with her homeschooling is, was simply not possible. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, there was no, well, we can fine tune, there was no, yeah, you know. fine tune her education to her. But I think that homeschool kids don't know limits. There's not an, a start bell. There's not an end bell. And like the day is theirs and you know, they can conquer it. We can fine tune her education, find the best teachers. If I want my kid learning, you know, a science, I'm going to go to a scientist to teach it to her. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like these things that you can do, but I'm sorry. I should not have gone. We could do a whole episode. Have yeah. you back just talking about like this because. I love it. I love it. I'm super passionate about it, but I mean, what, what else are you working for? Like even, like even the real estate stuff, like what else am I working for? At some, at some point you don't need any more money, right. Mm -hmm. To live a no. good life. So it's like, what are you really doing with real estate? And I think people forget that is like the why is I didn't have, my parents didn't hand off a legacy to me. My parents handed off work ethic to me, which was great, but also work ethic can be that double-edged sword that stabs you in the back and work ethic can be that thing where you fall in love with working, but if you don't understand what it should look like, you apply hard work to a good system and a good process that then works for you and provides for your family, then what are you doing this all for, right? And real estate is one of those amazing things. So I think it's the same topic at the end of the day. It's just a little deviation from it. Yeah, for sure. Well, we came here today to talk about creative finance. <laughs> and I will stop myself. Yeah, sometimes. go ahead. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what our conversations turn into sometimes. They're just, yeah. you know. They go off on, on their own little, little trail, but, um, and there's value in that. There is value, you know? So sure. and I could, I think that it legitimizes that there is more people out there that are doing more of a creative education for their children. So I appreciate that because I think a lot of people are scared to do it. And the more the people they see doing it right. and it's successful, it's, you know, it's good to go, but yes, please stop okay. me. All right. Creative <laughs> finance. First of all, I've got to say, before we get into mm -hmm. that, I love your branding, your marketing, 
I'm I'm a student of that kind of stuff. I've got a marketing degree, which taught me nothing about marketing, but I know good branding and good marketing when I see it. And I just love everything you do on that. Uh, so if you're in charge of that or if you have someone in charge of that, whoever did it. Is, yeah, it's, it's me you know. and, and uh, it's me. And then along the way, over the last couple of years, we've hired a really good team to amplify like even right now, right before the podcast, somebody sent me a new logo for this new thing we're doing. I'm like, nope, got to change this, 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 and this. So I'm very, very much involved in the marketing on, on everything. Yeah, well, very impressive. So creative finance, um, it's something that you know has been around for a while. And it's a tool that I believe is really underutilized, you know, especially in a hot real estate market. You know, there may be less opportunities to do some of the creative type deals. But as the market continues to shift, as we've been seeing for this second half of the year and, you know, likely into the next year or two or who knows how long, um, the market is shifting and it's going to lend itself to creative transactions. And I know that there's many ways to to do a creative transaction, and it really depends on the situation of the property owner or the seller. What is it about creative finance, I think, that that has really appealed to you? I mean, that's that's your thing. Wait. That's what you're an expert in. Like that. First, tell us what, what you consider creative financing. I know okay. I get to do the boring right. stuff. Um, okay, so creative finance. Uh, if I if somebody says, what is creative finance? I said it, <laughs> I say it's the process of buying anything, not just real estate. It's the process of, uh, process of buying anything without credit, credentials, or cash, or your own cash, right? So What's cool about creative finance is that for me, if real estate is a fire, creative finance is, is like gas that you can pour right on top of that fire and it just amplifies everything. And fixing and flipping, buying and holding, wholesaling, whatever it is, developing every single thing you can imagine we've done with creative finance. And so we acquisition side, the way we acquire deals is we acquire deals subject to, so taking over other people's existing debts. We've taken over IRS liens subject to, we've taken over HOA liens subject to, we've taken over um, an air conditioning lien, a mechanics lien subject to, I've bought cars subject to, I've bought, um, we're buying a business right now subject to, taking over an SBA loan. You can do anything with, with uh, subject to. Now, subject to is one way, then you've got seller finance, then you've got novation agreements, lease options, you've got uh, Morby method, which is a strategy that we created about a couple, a couple of years ago, where when a seller wants a really large down payment, because you'll run into that too, where a seller says, I'm willing to sell to you on creative finance, but I want a really large down payment. Okay, well, how do you handle that? Well, we created a new strategy called Morby Method. And I think there's 11 different ways on the front end to acquire a deal. And then there's 26 ways to dispo or hold or get rid of or profit on that deal. And that's what's cool about creative finance is it amplifies everything. Whereas like, most people that are doing cash, they go, okay, well, what, what can I do? Well, you can fix and flip, you can wholesale, and you can strat do the burst strategy. Cool. Fun. Okay, what about the other 40 things you can do with creative finance? And so for me, is like I just didn't like hearing that I wasn't able to do something. And I would continually run into issues, leads, and problems that really had issues that needed to be solved. But when I was just a cash investor, I couldn't solve 90% of the problems. And then I would hear other people have the same issue. Oh my gosh, my leads are bad. My leads are bad. The sellers are... And what was funny is people would criticize sellers. They would say, these sellers are up in the night. They're crazy. They want way too much money for their house. I go, is that really it? Or is it maybe the fact that they bought it 30 years ago, put their whole entire nest egg into that property, and they're trying to extract every amount of money they possibly can because they freaking deserve it. Different perception. And only a creative finance investor will actually have the solution to that and say, you're not asking for too much money. 
you're just asking for too much money with cash. So if I can apply a, a set of terms to this, I can pay you what you're asking and we can both win, have a win-win. What I learned, I've never had a cash transaction that didn't require me, require me. We do a lot of cash deals too, but my cash deals require me to dig into the pocket of my seller in order to extract their equity. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it because I'm exchanging their equity for convenience. However, with creative finance, I can bring not only convenience, I can bring more profitability, not even, not even what they're asking. And a lot of times I can actually give them more than what they're asking by giving them interest over a long period of time on a seller finance transaction. So the real answer is I just beat everybody's butt in every single appointment I go to when I use creative finance. In fact, like seven years ago, when I used to go on all my appointments, wholesalers would follow me on Instagram and they would see me post on my stories that I was going to XYZ house for an appointment. And the wholesalers would DM me and go, oh crap, you got the deal before I even go to the appointment. And the reason being is because they know I'm using a set of tools that they don't have access to. And the only thing they have is the one trick pony situation, which is I'm going to lowball every seller at 50, 60 cents on the dollar. Or like in the last couple of years when all these hedge funds were buying, they were still trying to get deals at 80 to 85 cents on the dollar, hoping that it would work. And I'm yeah. coming in a lot of times saying, okay, well, I'll give you the cash offer because of course we do cash deals too. But 90% of the time people go on appointments or talk to a seller and they're either A, they don't have enough equity or B, they want too much money. And if that's the situation, all these wholesalers or investors walk away from the deal saying, you want too much money and you're up in the night, you're crazy and I can't help you. Want to learn the secret to building a thriving land flipping business? Head on over to landconquest.com and join over 2000 passionate land flippers leveraging the power of community to scale quickly. Sign up for free at landconquest.com. All right, let's get back to the show. So it's like I'm the guy that gets to come in and just pick up all the great deals. Here's the first time I ever ran into it. I had this amazing lead. The way I got into this, I was a contractor for a long time. 10 years, I was a contractor. How, why was I a contractor? Because that's what my freaking parents taught me to be, right? I, I, you learn. You, you don't do what your parents tell you. You do what your parents do. My dad was a contractor. My mom was very hard worker. So I learned how to be a hard worker too. Became a contractor. Had a customer. Her name was Bethany Willis. Customer comes to me one day on the third job I did for her. And she's like, why are you working for me? Why aren't you doing real estate? And I'm like, Bethany, I am in real estate. What are you talking about? She's like, you are not in real estate pace. I'm in real estate and you're a service provider to me. You work for me. You think you own your own business? You don't. I own you. Very strongly, like punch right in the gut. And she convinced me to get into real estate. And she sat there on the back of my truck that day and she taught me how to send out postcards and generate leads. I generate leads. Literally that next week, I get a phone call. I go on that appointment. Lady's name is Janie Munson. Very long story. I'll, I'll cut very short because we, I've already eaten up 26 minutes of your guys' time. First deal I ever do. Okay. First deal I ever do. This is how I got the deal. I go to meet Janie Munson. She's a retiring school teacher moving from Arizona to Oregon. And she says, I've lived in this house for 40 years. I haven't renovated it. I haven't done anything to it. And every agent and wholesaler and investor that comes in here, she doesn't know what a wholesaler is, but you know what I'm saying. Everybody that comes in here is beating up my house and telling me I got to renovate it before they can do something or they got to buy this house for 120 grand. And I go, okay, well, why haven't you sold it? You've met with a lot of people. What are you looking for? She goes, well, I have a $165,000 offer. And I already knew before I went to the house, I knew I had to buy this at 150 or lower. And she says, I already have an offer at 165. Okay, why haven't you taken it? I asked her. She says, well, because it's my retirement. I'm never going to have another house 
that's going to have equity in it like this. I need to extract as much as I can. So I'm trying to get the highest offer possible. And I'm thinking, all right, that sucks. I can't help you. You know, I don't know how to talk a, a lady who deserves a higher dollar amount on the house because she worked hard for it. She lived in this house. She made all these payments and, you know, she did the thing. I don't know how to convince her to go from 165 to 149 or 150. I don't know how to do that. I was too new in the business, didn't know anything, right? So I, I basically, on my departure from that appointment saying, I can't help you. Sorry, I can't, I'm not even going to give you an offer. That's how deflated and defeated I felt. And there's a lot of investors that feel that same way when they're talking to sellers about cash offers. They go, I need 165. And in their mind, they're like, I have to buy this at 150. Felt so helpless, lack of tools. I felt like a contractor with an empty tool belt, right? Or I felt like a contractor with a hammer when I needed a screwdriver, right? Yeah. And I felt that way. And I was like, you know, I know my mom raised me different. So I'm going to ask this lady if she needs my help. So I asked her as I'm walking out of the house, I go, is there anything I can help you with? I'm a contractor. I could do a lot of things for you. Load your truck with my guy's labor or whatever it is that you need. She's like, you don't want to buy my house, but you want to help me? That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, well, Jeannie, you know, and I'm trying to explain to her, like, I just want to help her. She goes, what are you, a Boy Scout? I go, yeah, I am a Boy Scout. I'm an Eagle Scout. My parents made me get my Eagle Scout before I turned 16. I couldn't even go on a date with a girl until I got my Eagle Scout. And she's like, okay, well, all right. So I gain her trust. She goes, this is really weird. I've never shown any other people in these appointments this problem, but I do have a problem. She takes me to her backyard, slides open the glass door, and she shows me three Flemish bunnies. She says, this is a big problem for me. I'm like, what? Okay, you got three bunnies. This is your biggest problem. Guys, this is my first appointment to ever buy a house. In my life. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here going, your how is this? She goes, I have to move. And I need to rehome these bunnies. My granddaughter bought them for me. They're sentimental value. I've had them for 10 years and I can't take care of them anymore. And I need to rehome them, but to a family I can trust. And I'm like, all right, no problem. So who, what do I do? I pick up the phone, call my mom, call my mom, mom, Janie Munson, bunnies, rehome, help me. 45 minutes later, my mom shows up in a red truck I've never seen before. Still to this day, no, have no idea where the truck, red truck came from. My mom comes up super resourceful pulls the bunny, gives Janie a hug. Oh, my son always loved his teachers. Da, 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 da. I give Janie a hug. I leave. On my way leaving, Janie says, um, you sure you don't want to buy my house? I go, I can't. You want too much money. And you deserve, to, you deserve more money, Janie. That's the difference. I really, as an investor, and I've probably done a good thousand wholesale deals over my career. Easy. Still just did a thousand, or we did an $81,000 assignment just the other day. We wholesale all the time. Done a lot of land flipping, done a lot of land development, built probably 500 homes as a contractor and as a flipper myself. I've done all the things. But in these moments, I, you feel helpless. And I was like, I can't help you, Janie. She goes, okay, great. Two weeks later, I get a call from Janie. She says, Pace, I gave myself homework. Remember, I'm a school teacher. I gave myself homework to sell the house. And today's the day I have to make a decision on who I'm selling the house to. And I looked at my phone every day waiting for you to call me and manipulate me and tell me that you are going to yell at me and scream at me because you helped me rehome my bunnies and how dare I sell my house to anybody else. I was waiting for that call. And lo and behold, you didn't call me. You didn't text me. You didn't even check in on me. And I was like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry, but I wasn't going to call and manipulate you. You have nothing to be sorry about. You showed me that you genuinely want to help me without anything in return. And so I made the decision today. I'm selling my house to you. And I was like, you don't even know my price. She goes, I know your price will be fair. That's what I know get your contract and come up here and buy my house. So I get up, I go up there, buy her house for 150 grand. I assign the deal and I make $25,000 and I'm like, okay, this is great. 
awesome. I could tell, I could talk an hour about this great story, but here's what ends up happening. I learn that the reason why I buy real estate is because I find the bunnies and I find out how to rehome those bunnies, which means the seller's real underlying problem. Everybody else is looking at numbers and spreadsheets and da 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 da. I became the number one closer. I became a home. You guys know home investors. We buy ugly houses. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I owned a franchise of them shortly thereafter, and I became the number one closer in the nation. And when everybody asked me, why were you, how are you the number one closer? I go, because I know how to find the bunnies. I know how to build a rapport and find people's bunnies. And you guys are over here trying to whittle people down and coming in with clipboards and abusing people on their windows and their roof color and their this and their that and how they haven't rented the ha renovated the house in 30 years. I bought the majority of my houses without ever going past the living room. I could care less about the house. It's never been about the house. It's always about the person. Always. And the fact that I learned that in my first appointment, oh my gosh, so powerful. So I go, I buy two more deals that week off my leads that were coming in. And I open all three files at this title company. And I meet this lady named Eileen Brown. Eileen Brown's epic lady. She says to me, she's like, man, you're new. You got three contracts in like one week. You're new. I've never seen you before. Who the heck are you? And I tell her, tell her a story about the bunnies, tell her about the other two stories that I won't go into today about the other two deals I bought. And she's like, wow, you're lighting the world on fire. I go, yeah, but I got a problem. Nobody can tell me what to, what to do to help these people. Like I can, there's obvious bunnies people have. They're going through a divorce, right? They have literal bunnies, right? Whatever it is, there's obvious ones. And then there's not so obvious ones. And the, the not so obvious ones I'm running into are people that have no equity. I don't know how to solve their problem. And there's some people that just want way too much money for their property. And she corrected me, okay? Eileen Brown has been in title and escrow business for 48 years. Lady's a gangster, literally in her 70s. <laughs> she just seen it all. And she says, Pace, these people don't want too much for their money. You just don't know how to handle this. And she told me the, the analogy of the tool belt. She said, you're a contractor. You're just going to the, you're going to the job site with no tools in your tool belt. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? She then tells me what subject two is, which is the process of taking over somebody else's payments. She then tells me what seller finance is, which is working out an ag agreement with the seller to create an IOU essentially. And I'll, I'll turn that seller into my bank. And I'm like, I truly didn't quite understand it hundred percent, which I'll get into how I truly started understanding this a lot more, but I had to lay down on the ground in her office. When she told me this, I was like, I'm like, man, I've had 30 leads. I've only been able to buy three of them. The other 27 people I was criticizing that they didn't have equity and they wanted too much money. And she then basically smacked me across the face and said, don't ever say a seller wants too much money. What you should be saying is I don't have the tools to solve this problem. In fact, you, here's what you should be saying, Pace, going back to your bunnies. You don't have the net to catch their bunnies. I was like, dang, Eileen, you just, <laughs> you just changed the game for me. So I said, what are those bunnies? And she bumped, jumped up. She drew this all out on a whiteboard and she talked to me about some amazing analogies. She talked to me about what subject two really is and what seller finance really is. So as I'm leaving that, uh, that uh, title company, my, my dad called me and my dad's like, Hey, how's, how's this real estate thing going? You know, your mom told me about these bunnies that she just helped you out with and da, 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 like what's going on. I'm like, dad, you wouldn't believe it, man. You wouldn't believe it. I just, I just figured out what, what, subject two and seller finance and lease options, novation agreement. I just, Oh my gosh. He's like, I go, have you ever heard of these? He goes, yeah. How do you think I bought every house that you ever lived in? I bought it subject to seller finance or lease option. I was like, what? What? And he says, Pace, I had 12 kids. 
most of my income was non-reported as a contractor. I'd get a lot of cash deals or people give me cashier's checks or whatever. And it was non-report, non-reporting you know, income. And I could go get a three-bed, two-bath house, but how is that going to house 14 people, 12 kids and a, and a married couple? So I would go directly to owners and I would work out arrangements with them. I didn't know it was called subject to, but I'd just say, let me take over your payments or let's work out an agreement, like an, a rent to own or you know lease option type of thing. And he goes, I did that 26 times up until you were 19 years old. And yeah, I know. I'm like, why didn't you invest? Why didn't you go? Why didn't you go build a portfolio? And my dad says, well, I was too busy working. It was that moment right there that I realized that that was my biggest issue. My biggest issue is I was so busy as a contractor, keeping my hands on make, like exchanging time for money that I wasn't building real wealth. And I looked at my dad, I was like, I'm glad my dad gave me this model of work ethic and, and this ability to understand you apply work and you'll make money. But I didn't want to make money. I wanted to make myself wealthy and I wanted to make myself, I wanted money working for me. And we've all heard this stuff. So here's what's cool about Eileen Brown. She says, Pace, go back to all your leads that you set, you thought were crazy. And I want you to bring those leads back to me and I'll tell you how to, how to structure them. This is how I tell everybody what seller finance is. This is even how I talk to sellers in seller finance. This is how I explain it. I got so good at creative finance and seller finance. I, there's, I can't find a single person. I've been in every mastermind you can imagine. I've been on every stage, been on every podcast. I, you can't find one person that buys one-tenth the amount of creative finance deals that I buy in an upswinging market. The hottest markets, 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 dominated. And then everybody else now right now wants to talk about creative finance which is true. It's been completely amplified. I now have so many deals, I can't even handle them all. But before I would buy, I bought more deals, creative finance than I could with cash. And the reason being is because people that lacked equity or people that wanted too much money for their property, which in an upward trending market is exactly what happens. People want too much money for their properties. And instead of me fighting with them, I said, well, why don't we work out terms? And here's one of the greatest ways that I, I started getting really, really good at working out terms with somebody. People around town started finding out I, this guy Pace was really handling these dead leads incredibly well. And wholesalers and real estate agents would start calling me and say, hey, will you go on appointments with me? Yeah, go on appointments with you all day long. I'll, I even turned off all my marketing for two years because all I did was just do other people's appointments and other people's dead leads, which is like literally 95% of their leads would just fall on the floor dead because they want too much money, don't have enough equity. It's one of those two. Or it's actually one of these three. They weren't really interested at all. And they probably should have gone through a real estate agent, right? They don't have any actual real motivation to sell to an investor, or they don't have equity, or they want too much money. One of those three. So if I can't help you on the real estate agent front, I'll let my wife list it or whatever, but I can help you on those other two things. And so I had this wholesaler calls me up. His name's Tom. And Tom calls me, goes, hey, will you go on an appointment with me? I've got this seller named Susan and she wants way too much freaking money for a house. And I'm like, well, how much? And he says, Zillow says it's worth a hundred grand and she wants 110. Okay. Well, we've all dealt with sellers like this. I've dealt with land sellers like this. I did a whole 50 uh, house development. A seller sold to me on seller finance because he wanted 15 grand and everybody else was offering him eight grand per lot. I gave the man $16,000 per lot. And people go, what? You are crazy. And I'll, I'll get into that story in just a minute. But I go, no problem, Tom. I'll go on that appointment. He's like, you really will go on this appointment? I go, yeah. And he goes, how are you going to talk her down? I go, I'm not going to talk her down. I'm going to talk her up. I'm thinking completely opposite from you, you knucklehead. And he's like, all right, do you mind if I go on the appointment? I go, yeah, you just stand there and you shut your mouth. Please don't say a single <laughs> thing. Let me do my job. He goes, no problem. So we go to the appointment and I'm standing in the, in the kitchen with Dale and Susan and Tom sitting to my left. 
And I don't know what it is about the kitchen, but like everybody gravitates to that kitchen island. I go, Susan, I hear you want 110 grand for your house. She goes, yep. I go, all right, cool. I imagine you're probably getting offers somewhere around like forty, fifty thousand $50,000 for this property. It's a three bed, two bath house. And she says, yeah, yeah. How do you know? And I go, well, because if I was going to offer you cash, that's what I would offer too, which is literally what I say to so many sellers. And my team says this to so many sellers. We always just throw that out there. We go, yeah, you're probably getting offers around 60, 70 grand, or now it's like getting offers at 250, 260. Yeah. How do you know? Well, because that's what we would offer too. And at that point, the only person that wins in a cash transaction is who's a better salesperson, more trustworthy, and follows up more. That's really the only three things that you bring as, a, as an advantage. That's it in a cash transaction. So I don't know who those other people are, but you got to make that decision. If, is that price good for you? Great. All those people are going to pay roughly the same. Sometimes they'll pay $1,000 more, $2,000 more. But what if I told you, Susan, that I would buy the house for $40,000, $50,000? You'd probably say no, because that's lowballing you, right? She says, yeah, that's lowballing me. We've owned this house for 30 years, blah, blah, blah. We have the house paid off. Okay, cool. Well, I would be willing to pay you up to $110,000 if you were willing to give me terms. And she says, terms, right? No seller knows what terms are. It's like a trigger, trigger word that I use. So she goes, terms? I go, yeah, I'll give you terms. And she says, what are terms? I go, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you what, how I learned what terms are. And I go, I had this F-150. And I then de deviate because people do not get educated by you telling them what seller finance is and subject to and all these things that the sellers have no clue what that means. Sellers don't even know the value of their own house. You think they're going to understand the terms of novation agreements and lease options and subject to and so no, I never use any of these words into my appointments. This is also a, a, one of the things that sets me apart. I don't try and overcomplicate any of this stuff. And she, I, she goes, okay, you had an F-150 and she stops me and she goes, how, what, what does your truck have to do with anything with my house? I go, listen to me, just Susan, relax. So I said, I had this F-150 as a contractor, hit 320,000 miles, started having little problems here and there, had been to repair this, repair that. And this truck would carry four guys to a paint site and they'd paint. That truck would basically produce money for me. And I started having problems. I go, you know what? Screw this truck. I'm going to sell it. So what do I, where do I go, Susan, to sell my truck? Like, how do I know what my truck is worth? It's kind of like what you did with your house. When you decided 110 grand, where did you go to figure out the value? She goes, Zillow. I go, okay, great. What's the Zillow of cars? She goes, Kelly Blue Book. I go, yep, I went to Kelly Blue Book. I find out the truck is worth five grand. I could, just like you, could sell it for what I think it's worth, what other people are telling me it's worth, or I could be belligerent like you and try and sell it for way higher. She's like, you think I'm belligerent? I go, yeah, and I am too, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Your price of $110,000, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So let's, let me tell you what I did with my truck. And I basically tell her, told her, I put it on Craigslist for 10 grand, twice as, as much as what it was worth because I was assuming somebody's going to lowball me. And I didn't even get a call. Three months later, my wife comes in, Hey, you need to sell this truck. I go, okay. And I literally do, I just change one thing on my ad. And the one thing I change on my ad, Susan, is F-150 will take payments. Now, do you think I sold that truck for $10,000? And she goes, probably. I go, I didn't. I sold it for $12,500 with $1,000 down, 4% interest. And I ended, up, I ended up collecting payments on that truck, totaling about $16,000 for what Kelly Blue Book told me was worth five that I probably would have been lowballed to $3,500. I literally sold this truck for over 400% what its value was based on what somebody else told me it was worth. And she says, why would Jose ever do that? 
And she, but at this point, she now understands what seller finance is. She knows what creative finance is. And she goes, why would Jose do that? And I go, let me tell you something, Susan. The value of something is never the purchase price. The value of something is what I can do with it. So if you give me terms that allow me to make money on this property, then I can pay your $110,000 on seller finance. And she goes, well, what terms did you give Jose? I go, I did $1,000 down, $350 monthly payment, gave him the title. He, gave, he did the right insurance, had a tracker on the vehicle, all the things you can imagine of how I, I protected myself. And she says, okay, I'll give you terms. I'll give you terms. I go, okay, great. Well, you're the bank now, Susan, and I'm coming to you and I'm applying for seller finance. What would you like for terms? And she goes, I want 20 grand down and I want 8% interest. I go, okay, I'm probably not your buyer. <laughs> I'm probably not your buyer. And she says, well, why? You said you'd pay terms. I go, well, here's the thing. Think about this as a teeter-totter. You want a really high purchase price all the way up here. If you want a high purchase price, I can give that to you, but I got to have a low down payment and low interest. But if you want a high down payment and high interest, then we got to lower that down payment. Or I'm sorry, lower that, that uh, purchase price. And she goes, wow, that makes sense. Like talking about a teeter-totter in my negotiation is how I win these appointments. Talking about an F-150 in these appointments is how I win my appointments. It's why I become the best educator in creative finances because I tell third grade stories that get people to understand this stuff. And she says, well, what would you do? And I go, well, I've already given you all your profit, right? Other people are offering you 50, 60. I'll pay you 50 grand over what other people are asking but we just got to say that that's your interest. Your interest is already included in that. I would do zero down principal only payments, no interest. And she goes, okay, I can do the principal only, but I'm, I need a down payment. Okay. I can do a down payment. No problem. So what I did is I structured, I go, if I give you a down payment, this is before I hit her up of how I would pay the down payment. I said, if I give you the down payment, you have to pay the closing costs. She goes, okay, done. So she pays $1,400 in closing costs. I take over this new three-bedroom, two-bath house with tenants already in it, paying $1,650 a month. And people are sitting here asking, why did you pay $110,000? Tom is sitting here saying, why did you pay $110,000? I go, Tom, pay attention to this. They have a tenant paying $1,650, $1,650 a month. The reason why they're selling the property is what you failed to ask, Tom. Why? Why are they selling? Why do they want to get rid of this? Where are the bunnies? And so I started showing Tom the bunnies, because he was in the appointment, but he wasn't paying attention to the bunnies. So here's the bunnies. We hate our tenants because they're family members. We have to beg them for the rent every single month. And then when we go to Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're the bad guys. We look like idiots. And all we're trying to do is rent out the property. And I go, okay. In my mind, I already know the solution. The solution is don't rent to your family. But if I take over the property, I'm not their family and I can be bad. I can be Mr. Bad Guy. And I don't care about Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I'll threaten to kick them out or they pay their payments on time. Guess what? Here we are four years later. They're still in the property, still paying. They're now 1850 bucks a month. We've bumped their rent. They've never been late one time after we threatened. So I took over the tenants. Didn't have a renovation still to this day, not no renovation. And I'm like, okay, so Tom, they want to, but why do they want to sell the house? And he goes, I don't know. I, I don't, why? I go, because they want to travel the country in their RV and they don't want to worry about collecting payments every single month because hired landlords where we get a lot of our deals don't know how to run a business, don't know how to run a real estate operation. Dealing with tenants is problematic for them and annoying. For us, it's a, just like putting on a pair of pants. And he goes, okay, so you're taking over the tenants. You're taking over the problems. They now have a rep reputable person that's going to pay the payments for them. How did you decide on what your monthly payment to her was? And I go, that's the key. 
They're so excited. They've got this vision of their mind of where they're going to go and they're going to travel around the country in their RV. They're going to finally be retired. Do you remember that part? I asked her, I said, Susan, how much money does it cost you to rent an RV spot on a monthly basis? And she says, $375 a month. I go, perfect. Why don't we set up the payment to be $375 a month so for the rest of your life, you never have to worry about another RV rental spot? She's like, great. Boost your land flipping earnings with our new Land Conquest business system. It's designed for efficiency and effectiveness. This cutting edge software tool is your key to success in the land flipping industry. Streamline and automate your operations to scale your business to new heights. With our system, you get a customizable website with six professional templates to choose from, up to five dedicated phone numbers, each with their own chosen area codes for creating a trustworthy local presence. And as a bonus, you'll get a $25 credit for SMS and email sends. You'll also get access to our tech team to build any automations or customizations that you want. And not to mention, we've got a great dedicated community to the Land Conquest business system to help us all thrive together. And with every step of the way, you get our 24-7 live chat support. But that's not all. You'll also gain access to our exclusive community to connect and grow with fellow land flippers. Seize the opportunity to transform your business. Visit software.landconquest.com to check out the Land Conquest business system and unlock the next stage of your land flipping success. And so then I said, okay, perfect. If we do that, then I can give you $10,000 down. But here's how I'm going to do the $10,000. I'll buy the property from you. And in six months, I'll give you five grand. And in six more months, I'll give you another five grand on top of my monthly payment. So if you do the math on that, okay, the math on that is 1650 is coming in, 375 is going to them for payments. I've got 225 in property taxes, insurance, and a little bit of CapEx. I'm netting $1,050 a month on that property. Six months goes by, I have six grand. I take five of it, pay my down payment. Six months later, I got another six grand, pay five grand for my down payment. I do most of my deals this way, where I seller finance the property and I seller finance the down payment. And I get into these deals where I'm getting zero down. I'm getting a lot of zero down deals, a lot of 0% finance deals. I get a ton of deals with land this way, where I, I go to the seller and I go, okay, I'm going to build on this land. I've got a 75 acre development in Oklahoma right now. And I go, I'm going to build on this land and you want too high of a purchase price. So why don't you hold that purchase price? I'll give you that purchase price but I can't give it to you until my buyer comes and buys the finished product from me. And so I have the seller carry the, carry the note. We create a note that says zero payments, 0% interest, no payments for, for 36 months, gives me the time to entitle the land, get everything done, build the property, sell it off. Buyer comes in, pays what they pay. We pay off the seller and the note and I take the rest of the profit. I'm into the deal, basically no money. And what I do is I partner with a developer Okay, so I've got this 75 acre development. We're building 500 multifamily units or a bunch of duplexes. And the developer has a line of credit. So he's using his line of credit. And as we go build 10 units, we sell those off. We replenish his line of credit. We pay the seller for that portion of the deal. We move on to the next 10 units. And I'm into the deal, no money out of pocket, literally no money out of pocket. So there's thousands of different ways you can structure these deals. It doesn't matter if it's land. I own mobile home parks. I just bought Last week, I closed on a 256-unit multifamily deal in Springfield, Illinois for $20 million, $0 down, 4% interest. Here's the great thing. Seller gave me a 50-year note. And when people ask me, they go, why does a seller do this? Why does a seller do this? Why does a seller do this? I go, because I know what their bunnies are. 
I know what their actual motivation is. It's never about the it's never about the property, never about the numbers. It's always about something else that's going on. My first multifamily deal I ever did was a really great seller finance deal on multifamily. It was a seller named Mario. And I'll shut up. Maybe you guys have a couple of questions, but I meet with Mario. He had a failed listing. Like we got the we got the we got this lead from a expired listing. So he had the multifamily uh, 43 units in Texas listed on the MLS, LoopNet, all the places. And didn't sell it. Expired listing. We call the expired listing and we always ask the same question on expired listings to say, "Hey, what were you looking for on the market that you weren't able to get? Is there any way we can help you out?" It's our opening line. And then they complain about the agent, complain about everybody. Nobody did their job, blah, blah, blah. And now I've got a common enemy, which is great. Now we've built rapport, which is great. And so I ask Mario, go, hey, you know, would you sell this on seller finance? Mario says, yeah, I would if you can give me my 3 million. Because everybody keeps telling me they'll buy it for 2.5 and that's what it's worth. I go, Mario, the property's worth what I can make on it, not what I can pay for it. So if you can give me good terms, then we can work this out. So he's like, I don't know. I don't know. Give me a million dollars down. Give me 7% interest and 10-year balloon. Horrible terms. Horrible terms. Like, it, not only does he want the, it's like the teeter-totter has completely snapped in half. It's like he wants yeah. high purchase price, 30% down, 8%. It's just a horrible deal. So what I did is I decided to fly out to Texas and meet with him because this is a good deal and, or a good property. I want this property. It's near other assets I own. I want it. So I go, all right, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go. I tell my team, I go, I'm going to go bunny hunting. That's what I do. I go bunny hunting. I want to find those bunnies. I want to get invited to the backyard, just like Janie Munson invited me to her backyard. Open that, that sliding glass door. It means I've built up enough rapport. You've let me into the, your deep, dark secrets. I want to know what's really going on. And this is what I find. This is the kind of stuff I find out. Mario, 55 years old, kept telling his, his wife he's going to retire. They've got about $50 million in real estate. And she keeps telling him, start selling this real estate. You need to spend more time with us. We need, you need to spend more time with us. Why? I'm going to tell you guys something. People are listening to this. Most real estate investors are horrible business operators. And so what happens is they go buy. I'm not talking about today. Like in today's day and age, there's technology, there's systems, there's seminars, there's mentorships. 30 years ago, none of these landlords had this stuff. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have this stuff. So they're basically taking word of mouth of like, okay, so I should be installing new toilets myself on Saturdays. And I should be <laughs> collecting the rent myself to save money. And I should be blah, 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 blah. These are called tired landlords. 20 years of this has beat them to a pulp. So that is one of the greatest opportunities in the multifamily space for creative finance is finding operators like Amario who have 30 units to 150 units. Why that, that pocket is because that's what I've found is the best for creative finance. People are willing to do seller finance. And also I don't want to do anything smaller than 30 units because it's problematic with management. You're not making enough money to hire a manager. So I fly out. I meet with Mario. It's a 43-unit deal. And this is what I find out. Think about his wife. Think about this stuff. He says to me, brings up his 12-year-old son. All right. I haven't found the bunny yet, but I got the bunny. I'm smelling the bunny. I see the droppings. And I'm just going to follow the droppings until I find out what's really going on. And he, I go, so what's going on with your son? How's he doing? What's he up to? What's he interested in? I'm, I, I find this pain point. And I basically invite him. Take me to the backyard, man. Show me these three Flemish bunnies you got back here show me. And he says, yeah, you know, my, my son, my son just had a birthday. And I go, when was it? He's like last week. And I go, cool. What'd you guys do? And he goes, well, we haven't celebrated it yet. I've been too busy with the property. We're going to celebrate it in a couple of weeks when things die down a little bit. This is like kind of a busy part of the year. I'm like, Ooh, man, you're celebrating your child's birthday on a different day than his birthday. That doesn't make your child feel very special. I didn't say that to him, but I just knew more droppings, more bunny droppings, more bunny droppings. 
I said, what's your kid to ask for for his, for his birthday? This is all recorded, by the way. I document everything that I do. And he says to me, he starts crying and he says to me, he says, the only thing my son asked for is more time with me. Hmm. That's tough. Yeah, that is tough. And I said, brother, the number one thing keeping you from giving you, your son everything that he's asking for is this property. You come over here every weekend. You're coming over here talking to your tenants. You're throwing them parties. You're doing all these things for you. And, he, and I say this to him and he goes, you're right. Three years ago, my son told my, my wife when he was nine years old, hey, mom, does dad love those people more than he loves me? Oh. Now we're talking bunnies. These are bunnies. Mm -hmm. these, are, these are not the mathematical reasons that everybody's like, oh, well, he's trying to sell because he's retiring and he's this and he wants a hot. Guys, there's a major difference between people's reasons for their selling of what they tell you and where the bunnies are in their backyard. And I've gotten so good at getting into people's backyards and I get into Mario's backyard and I said, Mario, here's the thing, man. You, you own this property. You bought it for a million dollars. I'm offering you three mil. Let's do a zero down situation. I'll pay you 4% interest. And why don't you, why don't you, well, let's put a payment together that all the way through your son's adult years, going to college, whatever he wants to do, even if you pass away, I've got a payment going to your son for the rest of his life up until he's 60 years old. Let's create a 50 year note. Now I got something to negotiate mm -hmm. with. Now I know what I'm talking. Now I'm not, it's not just about numbers. It's about solving a problem and understanding the problem. And so that's what I did. I did a zero down deal, 43 units, gave him a 50 year note. So now his son, who's 12 this year, will be 62 if I decide to keep the property and never refinance or never sell it. It'll be 62 before I pay that all the way down to zero. But the payment's so low. This is what's cool is the payment's so low. So it brings in um, 37 grand a month, roughly. And my payment to Mario is 11 grand a month. So I've got a $26,000 Delta. I've got management, repairs, handyman issues, vacancy, blah, blah, blah. My net on that property every single month is about 14 grand on one deal, $0 down. I $14,000. Most people that are starting out would go, I would retire on that one deal. Right. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and I would argue you won't because what you'll do is you'll get a taste for money and you'll realize, oh, I could use that 14 grand. I need another one of those. <laughs> yeah, I need another one. And I can use that 14 grand to hire an operations manager to then start scaling my business and this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 blah. And that's essentially what I've been doing. So this year in 2022, I acquired 1,600 doors all through creative finance. I like that that first deal that, or the one you just talked about, it's a win-win though. You know, it's like, I like seeing it hundred percent. I've happy, never right? had a creative finance deal that wasn't a win-win and the majority of my cash deals are not. Now I, I shouldn't say that. The majority of my cash deals are win-win, but the win that the seller's getting is convenience. They're not right. getting away right. on the finances. They're losing right. on the finances. I'm giving them convenience for me to win on the finances, but in creative finance, I give them convenience and they win financially while I have the convenience as well. And I win on the finances. It's truly a win-win. Mm -hmm. I have um, a bunch of rapid quiet questions, but I know that you have, you've got eight. Well, I've got a couple real quick. Okay. I mean, yeah. the, the fact, I think one of the big things that, that people always bring up, or maybe they have this perception in their minds that creative finance is something that uh it's a negative connotation yeah, and, it, and it's mm -hmm. and it's something that well you know you're gonna have problems with it or, or something like that um meaning it's it's shady in some way but the fact is that all these transactions go through an escrow or title company or whoever you know whatever state this is you just had a notary come too yeah, you know what i mean yeah above board if you set them up right and you're a legitimate person yeah so 
have you run into that? Have a lot of people come up with that objection? Yeah, it's, it's typically uneducated brokers and real estate agents that they think because they have a license that they know what they're talking about. And then I quickly remind them that, Hey, do you remember when you were in real estate school, they didn't even teach you how to comp a property? We both did. I mean, I was a licensed agent, you're a broker. And the second that we got our license, we both looked at each other like, what are we doing? I now? have no idea what, like, oh, thankfully we had bought purchase, you know, you know, uh, purchased properties before, but from the actual training, no. And, and the thing that yeah. kind of shocks me too is, and I, and everyone starts and, you know, there was a time when we didn't own a house, right? Like when we were, when I was 21, but anyways, everyone has to start somewhere, but there's a lot of agents out there that have never purchased real yep. estate themselves. I looked that up a couple of years ago. It was like something like 60% per of real estate agents, licensed real estate agents are buying and selling houses for other people, but they've never bought a house for themselves. They're still renting. And you find out that over 87% of it's like a little over 87% nationwide real estate agents don't have an investment property themselves. It's kind of shocking just because I think it goes back to when you were a financial advisor, like the yeah, reason you thing. left that profession was you were good. I was say. teaching people how to invest their life savings or consulting with people how to mm -hmm. invest their life savings. And I was living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, you were, you're, just, you're you know, 20 something, but yeah, you know, yes. But I mean, that that's, that's the kind of stuff mm -hmm. that's out there. And I think it all comes back to education and knowledge is power. And the fact that you have armed yourself with all these tools and all these solutions for people and reality, they're solutions to problems. I'll get sellers that come to me, you know, in these transactions, they'll, they'll say, Hey, my real estate agent says this is not what he, he should suggest. And I said, okay, let me ask you a couple questions. Have you ever been to a doctor and asked an opinion about something that was going on in your life, your body, your health, whatever. And you were like, that's not what's going on. And you had to go get a second opinion. Most women have done this, especially when you guys are having babies, you guys deal with a bunch of knucklehead gynecologists and especially my wife, just watching women go through this a lot. My sellers all say, yeah, actually I, I had this thing in my mouth and I went to this dentist. He said it was this, it wasn't that they charged me a bunch of money. And then I had to go to different, a different dentist that said, oh my gosh, why did this guy do that? the solution was actually this. Have you guys ever dealt with anything like that? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Okay. Far yeah. too often. The cool yes. thing is, remember, I solve every problem, every question, every objection with tying it back into everyday life, not talking about creative finance. I didn't talk about creative finance right there to beat up their real estate agent. In fact, I didn't talk about the real estate agent. I talked about doctors. So what mm -hmm. I said is, I said, look, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had this happen? They go, yeah. I go, okay, so here's my suggestion. Maybe we should have you talk to a real estate attorney that actually does these types of transactions. Cause I would never suggest you go get a root canal from a dentist that only does cleaning. Of course, a dentist that only does cleaning is not going to have the right answer. So we're going deep on this. You're going to win big time. I'm going to win big time. Let's talk to somebody that knows how to make sure that we're all above board. And so I then suggest them to a title company, a closing attorney, or a, a contract attorney in their local state. We do deals in all 50 states and I'll refer them to the 15 people and go call these people. There was a point where I used to pay for the attorneys to help out. I go, Hey, I'll pay for a consultation. You got go talk to the attorney. But my big goal, like five years ago was I'm going to be so good at creative finance that I'm going to normalize this conversation. And it, it's become so incredibly easy at the last five years because my army of people that have learned from me, both on YouTube and my community have really changed the landscape of creative finance. It's way more common today than it was five years ago. And, but yeah, I, I get that. And most of the time, I used to pick on agents and brokers a lot when they would say stuff like that. And I go, you know what you just told me? And they would say, oh, this doesn't sound like, I'm like, you know what you just told me is how uneducated and inexperienced you are. And I would say stuff, really rude things. And I learned from my lessons because you don't attract bees with vinegar, you attract bees with honey. And I would try and overwhelm them with 
you know, criticizing them and say, how dare you list somebody's property and you not know how to get them the top dollar? How dare you? I would say stuff like that. And I would learn, I learned from my mistakes. It's not how you do it. So I now with brokers, when I'm talking to brokers or real estate agents, I say, hey, look, if I can make sure your commissions are paid, which is the only thing in the back of an agent's mind they care That's about. That's the whole thing. If I can make sure your commissions are paid, can we get me, your seller, on a Zoom and I can explain it to both of you? What I also find is that brokers will not present creative finance to their seller because the broker doesn't understand creative finance. And they'll blockade that. And instead of them saying, I, I tell people this story about a, the bank teller paradox. Okay. We've all ran into this, especially when you're a budding business owner. You have a sizable check that somebody gives you and you run down to the bank to deposit. You need to release it today because you got to pay these other people. We've all been there, right? Welcome to being a business owner. Well, one time I was a contractor and I had this massive check that came to me and I was on the other side of town when I collected it away from my branch that would normally do cool things for me because they know me, right? They trust me. So I'm like, oh my gosh, my guys, you know, it's Friday afternoon. I got to pick up this check from this insurance company. It's a $250,000 check. And I run down to the local Bank of America. I wait in line. It's Friday. I wait in line for 30 people to go through their bank. I go up to the bank teller. And of course, the person, there's always this bank person that's coming up to people in lines like, is there something we can help you with instead of going to the teller? I'm like, I need to go to the teller. Do not bother me. I'm not going to the ATM and I'm not, don't bother me. I need to go to that teller. And I go all the way up to the teller. I go to the teller. I go, I need to cash this check. And I need to make sure it's available today. She goes in there. She goes, okay, well, um, we're going to be putting a 10-day hold on this. I'm like, why are you going to put a 10-day hold on here? The check is written off of Bank of America. I'm at Bank of America. And I'd say, let me talk to your manager. Manager comes over. And of course, the manager is going to dig their heels in, right? So this is like the real estate agent and the broker. They're going to back each other up. Broker doesn't want to make it that the agent looks stupid because they got to deal with the long-term repercussions of that relationship. Whereas I get to just leave the building and never have to see either one of those knuckleheads ever again. So the broker comes in or the, the banker, the manager goes, yeah, sir, this is bank policy. I'm like, give me my check. I take the check, drive 45 minutes to my other branch, walk through, wait through the line, give it to the girl that knows me. She makes the, the check available right then and there. I release payroll. Everybody gets paid. I take my receipt from that bank. I drive all the way back to town <laughs> and I wait all the way back through the line and I hand the receipt to them and I go, I just did your job. And so people that are new to this business, you have to remind yourself that the laws, the rules, the regulations, just because somebody says something is the way it is, doesn't mean it's actually true. In fact, I find the majority of the time, CPAs don't know what they're talking about. I know more than most CPAs. I wouldn't have said that five years ago, but I've lived enough life and bought enough real estate. It's amazing to me how many CPAs don't know about depreciation, bonus depreciation, cost segregation. They, I know CPAs that have never even heard of what cost segregation is, for heaven's sake. Criminal. Yeah. It's criminal, yet they're yeah. licensed and I'm not. So I tell those stories to people that go, well, this title company says that I can't double close or I can't assign or I can't do this, or I can't use hard money and then put a private money lender in second lien position. I was told I can't create a, a note that does X, Y, and Z. I was told I can't do a lien. I'm like, every single one of those people makes $40,000 a year. My advice to you is don't take advice from people making $40,000 a year. Talk to an attorney that does this stuff and you need to be the one that's directive. So one of the best, biggest hacks in creative finance is finding, and there's a lot of them, there's probably 25 to 50 of every title company and closing attorney in every state that does creative finance transactions incredibly well. 
work with them. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like build up that team of people that get it. Yeah, and the right people. Right. Yeah, Did you? Sure. Okay, keep going because I've got questions. So ask okay, yourself. No, go for it, Heather. You've got a. Are you a sure? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay, you ready? I told you I was going to ask random ones. Let's see. Okay, what's your favorite way that you're getting deals, your deal leads? My favorite way I'm getting deals is from people that I teach how to go out and find deals. I bought $100 million of real estate last year from people I taught how to go out and find real estate. That doesn't help your audience. So like my inter- my internal team that doesn't have a brand and doesn't have a name and doesn't have people learning from them, that obviously doesn't help them, but that's the answer. Um, th- what would help them is expired listings, foreclosures. Go after people that have obvious pain. When people say, go work with brokers and go w- work with real estate agents, I go, okay, that's great. But now, you, now you, if you're a great negotiator, all you're doing is you're adding another step in the process to talk to another person that now has to get paid. Learn how to find off-market deals and you'll dominate in the industry. Now, the other advantage to working with brokers and real estate agents is that you have long-term referrals that you get a build, build over time that an agent will sell, send you three or four deals a year. You don't have to go and cold call that agent ever again. You kind of have to figure out which way works for you. For us, I prefer to work directly with sellers. So we go after foreclosures or expired listings. Foreclosures, typically we get a lot of subject to deals. Expired listings, we get a ton of seller finance deals. Cool. Okay. How do you invest your money or do you invest your money outside of real estate or like where, where's your favorite way to invest outside of real estate or do you not do outside of real estate? And where do you put like your long-term investments in real estate? Real estate, as we probably all agree, is the number one way that we're all going to build wealth right? I look at all these, I look at people, I drive, I drive around, I'm at restaurants, I'm at Walmart, I'm at Disneyland, wherever I go, I look at everybody and this number pops in my head, 28.7%, 28.7%, 28.7%. And that's the amount of money that every human being pays towards their mortgage or their rent. And so I'm thinking, how do I get as many of these human beings to pay 28.7% of their income towards my my rent in the building that I own (laughs) and never have them know who I am. That is true wealth. These people are out there. They think they're working for their boss. They think they're working for themselves. But in reality, 28.7% of their efforts on a daily basis go to my wealth, my preservation, my legacy, et cetera. So for me, real estate is my number one thing. I own nine businesses. One of them is a company that does about $12 million a year. That business is a virtual assistant business. It's called startvirtual.com. We do medical billing, we do automations, social media management for a lot of people. So that's a cool business. I, I don't invest in that. That now pays me, but that was one of the things I used to take my real estate proceeds and I would pump that into that business until it grew up. Then I own title and escrow offices. So a title and escrow office, our goal is over the next 10 years to own 200 branches across the country. Those cost 400 grand to get up and going. Personnel, a building, payroll, licenses, blah, blah, blah. So I invest a good amount of money into, the, into that stuff. The other place, let's see, I just, this is, a, this is a weird one, but this is a true one. I invested in a guy who trades gold and I gave him a million dollars this year and he turned my million dollars into $3 million in one year. I 300% my money and I That's get a cool. check for that every single month. I, that was a weird one. I was like, somebody else was doing it with them and I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll, I'll throw down. I'll be a little bit risky on that. I wouldn't advise other people to do that, but that's a true answer for me. I would say 60% of the money that I make between all of my businesses goes back into buying real estate. Okay. That's fair. Um, okay. Have you ever sold a piece of property and regretted it? Every single time I buy a, I sell a property, I regret it. That was a leading question, Heather. We always talk about that. Everything we, we sell, aside from our land. There's some I'm, stuff, I'm but... cool that we sold, but for the most part. When you're brand new and you're like, I'm going to wholesale this deal or I'm going to quick flip it. Like in 2019 in our flipping business, cause we do flip as well. And the TV show that we're on, we flip obviously. 
In 2019, I made $1.5 million from flipping. And not, I never took a paycheck from that flipping business. I took that flipping money and we did, we deployed it into turnkey rentals in the Midwest. We have a company that will just throw money at and go, hey, we don't want to be involved in these. Then one year, 2020, we were like, hey, let's, let's take some of that money and let's not flip these. And let's keep the properties, right? And instead of pulling and extracting that $1.5 million of profit out, let's just keep these properties. And then, I mean, look what happened in 2021 and 22. These properties skyrocketed. Instead of that 1.5 getting sunk into some Ohio, I don't like Ohio and Iowa. A lot of people like Chris Crone are like, oh, I love these Midwest markets. They, they're great, great cash flow monsters, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but they don't appreciate. And you look at the Kiyosaki model, you, you buy in markets that appreciate. And after seven years, 12 years, you pull out and refinance those deals when interest rates are low and you get tax-free income. So I'm like, I took, we took our money in 2020 and we kept it into those deals. We didn't flip them. We kept them. And those, that 1.5 turned into $5 million in two years, rather than right now, my Ohio deals that I bought 1.5 million in real estate, I probably have $1.8 million over there. Made 300 grand in two years versus in good markets and keeping the properties in markets I really understand that have good appreciation, we, make, we made so much more money. And then right before interest rates went up in October, November, and December last year, we went through and were like, hey, let's refinance a bunch of these properties out, take a big windfall of cash, and then we went and bought an insurance business with it. Insurance, that's a good business. Everyone just pays you and oh. Warren Buffett's in it, I guess. Okay, next question. Sorry, yeah, I got to... Who is your real estate inspiration? Who is like, the, if you had to pick one singular person that you've kind of taken inspiration from in the real estate space, who would that be? I'm Robert, sure there's multiple, but- Robert G. Allen. Robert Allen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Robert Allen. And, the, and people think of it as like, because of the creative finance stuff. And he wrote, mm -hmm. you know, nothing down. He wrote the challenge. He wrote a bunch of really great books. I've become friends with Robert Allen and I- Admire him because he did things that other people didn't do, not even just creative finance. What he would do is people would say stuff like, that's not possible. And he would then challenge the LA Times to take a, a reporter and follow him and say, watch me do it, document it, and I'll prove you wrong. And then he would require them in a contract to, to throw a whole front page expose proving themselves wrong on the front of the LA Times. This guy was a gangster. Are you looking for funding for your land flipping deal? Then head on over to partnerwithpete.com. It's an innovative new funding program where we split the profits with you 50-50, but we take it one step further and we handle every other step of the process in the land flipping business. Yes, that means we handle all the due diligence. If the property needs any value add like clearing brush, perk test, survey, we'll get that paid for up front. Then when the property resells, we split the profits 50-50. There is absolutely no downside for you as an investor. If we lose money, we don't pass that on to you. But when we make money, when we make profit, we split the proceeds 50-50. So as a recap, we handle every part of the process. We split the profits with you 50-50. There's no downside for you as the investor, only upside. So go to partnerwithpete.com, submit your deal there, and we'll get it checked out within 24 hours. Smart, yeah. Oh. Do I have time for a few more? Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? Favorite vacation spot, Pebble Beach. Okay. And do you own anything there? I don't own anything in California, nor will I ever. Sorry if anybody owns stuff in California. Monterey, that That's, whole area is awesome. We love Paci well, Pacific Grove, Pacific which is not Grove. too far. That's like one of my favorites. Okay. Yeah. we got. I got married in Carmel and we, we used to go to the Pebble Beach Pro-Am every single year and just watch the celebrities and all, all that kind of fun stuff. And then we decided, let's get married there. 
And it's been a tradition. We go there during Christmas. Usually we'll go to Pebble beach for Christmas because Pebble beach is dead. Nobody's there. And we get to play all the golf courses, just me and my little kids and my wife get to just like run around the golf courses by ourselves. I love it. Okay. I'm going to keep going here. What will you never outsource? Creativity and branding. Like I I can come up with a company name. I can come up with this, an idea, all these kind of things. The second, oh, and culture. This is a really interesting thing. So I have about 7,500 students nationwide. If I try, people go, man, you spend twice, I'll do five, six, seven Zooms with them on a, week, on a weekly basis. And somebody goes, you need to outsource that. You need to blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, I'll do that. Like maybe I'll take one Zoom off my plate. And you do that and the culture changes. The leader is the person that, that instills that culture. And it's the same thing on like my YouTube channel. If somebody else comes up with an idea or they think here's what is a really good idea for a video, it flops because it wasn't, it, it didn't have your spirit with it. So from a marketing standpoint, marketing cannot be automated. Now, the pressing of the buttons and posting the post and doing the things and the, and those types of things can be automated, but the idea and how it's going to change people's lives and all that kind of stuff has to be, it has to be. I like it. Okay. Favorite app. Like what is the or most used app on your phone? Let's look. Um, my, on, my honest, most used app is Instagram. I don't look at anybody's stuff, but I communicate with so many people on Instagram. I voice memo probably four or 500 times a day on people's, um, people ask me questions and I voice memo them a quick little one minute answer. Um, behind that, uh, I would say Slack. Slack is phenomenal. We have 700 employees and so everybody communicates on Slack. And so I, go, I jump in there once a day. And then um, YouTube. I post a lot on YouTube and I'm in the community. I'm doing whatever. So throughout my day, like even today, I went to the gym early this morning and at between reps and sets, I'm not going and scrolling through stuff. I'm answering people's questions. I'm going in the comments. I'm helping people out with whatever questions they have. And also when people ask a question about a video I post, it also makes me realize, wow, I really sucked at that. I didn't do a good job explaining that. And so I'll go in my notes app and I'll take a note of like, next time you do a video about this, this, and this, make sure you hit really hard on this topic. I like that. I yeah, like that a lot. The YouTube series that you have at, at your channel is really pretty innovative and, and cool, I think. Is that something you came up with? Which one? It's like a series of like seven videos. Maybe I've got the number wrong, but it's like start here and then it just oh, kind yeah, of yeah, walks yeah. you through. Yeah, everything. when people it's jump in really the cool channel, concept. it's like, welcome to the channel. Yeah. In the, yeah, that was, I wrote that down. I was like, you know, if I join somebody's YouTube channel or YouTube channel, I want to be, I want to know which video should I watch first? So I, my first video says, welcome, start here. And then in that video, I go, guys, make sure you watch all the other videos. Cause it's like the top six things that everybody asked me. And yeah, that's, that was trial and error. That was like, nobody wants to go down into my 1300 YouTube videos. They want to find an answer right now. What is your biggest personality trait that has helped you succeed? Um, storytelling. I think we've proven that. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I can uh, attest to that. I yeah. loved it. Um, okay, who, what kind of personality or what type of person should not do creative financing? What would be something that you'd be, you met a person, how would you describe the person that you would say not to do it or can everyone do it? Um, every, everyone can do it. Everyone can do it. Okay, so it's something you can learn. Like even, it does, you don't have to have anything intuitive to you that would, anyone can pick it up. They just need the right education. Here's how I look at creative finance. I look at other people doing cash deals and I'm like, do you guys not realize that creative finance is actually 10 times easier than cash deals? I'm not actually having to negotiate and lowball people. So really when you're learning how to do cash deals, you have to learn how to be a great negotiator. In creative finance, you really don't. You go, oh, that's the price you want? Cool. I'm going to give you that price. Can you give me something in return? That's really the only negotiation you have. And so what I find is more people that fail in wholesaling or 
you know, doing fixing and flipping will succeed in creative finance because the reason they were failing is because they would call a lead or they'd talk to a bit this or whatever, and they couldn't make the numbers work. It's the number one reason why they can't get a deal done is because they can't make the numbers work. So if creative finance fills that gap, then for me, I feel like it's a much... Now, here's the hard thing about creative finance is you have to learn new terminology you've never heard before. But isn't that the same thing with anything else in real estate or anything else in any other business you learn? Like we're in the business- In life. In yeah. life. You become I'm in an the expert. process of buying a dog grooming business, zero down, and a truck, a tr a trucking company, zero down. And I'm sitting here, having, I'm writing down notes and terminologies I've never heard before about a dog grooming business. And so, yes, yeah, so anybody can learn it. You just got to learn the terminology and, and ask the, the right questions, but it's super easy. So like an intuitive mind, someone who wants to learn, somebody is inquisitive, not intuitive. I get words wrong all the time. So <laughs> he actually has a running list of words I get wrong. It's, you know, it's, good it's, stuff. it's awesome. Um, are there any types of real estate deals or business deals you will never I mean, never say never, but right this second, not interested. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to do development anymore. I hate development. It's not that I hate development. It's just that when you do other things, where it's like, oh, you know, I can buy something that's already done. There's already a tenant in place. Um, I can take over an existing situation. You can scale that way faster than going and doing development. And development also, you'll get caught with your pants down sometimes, where your entitlements or your permits or your contractor or whatever changes, like. We had this deal a couple of years ago where we went through the entitlement phase. We got a bid from a contractor and what happens? A whole year goes by as we're waiting for that stuff. And the contractor goes, I'm not doing those types of projects anymore. I'm like, okay, no problem. That happens. Let's go find another contractor. Price is double. It makes the, the deal die. I have done probably 700 new builds or additions or whatever in my life as a contractor and a flipper. And I just don't want to do them anymore. That box has been checked. I'm done with it. That's it. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, okay. So this is going to, uh, do you have anything before I, I do any other questions? Well, yeah, I did want to ask about what do you feel? Uh, do you feel like there's a big opportunity in the luxury home space? Maybe not someone that's going to, you know, use it as an Airbnb or something, but although that could be a good exit plan or a good plan with the property, but people acquiring properties for, with creative finance for their own personal residences, more of a luxury home. Oh yeah. I mean, if you, if you go on, like, for example, I don't know if you guys can let me sh sh uh, share my screen, but you guys are on landwatch.com. I'm sure all the time, right? Landwatch. Yep. So if you go on landwatch right now, there's 12,643 listings all on owner financing, not just land, but also buildings, commercial storage units, and big mansions up in cabins and lake homes and all sorts of cool stuff. So 12,643 listings on landwatch right now all on owner finance. So yes, massive opportunity. I have not lived in a house I bought with cash in 10 years. This house I live in, 11,000 square foot, 12 bedrooms, nine baths, guest home, huge, humongous house, bought it on creative finance. The house before that creative finance, the house before that creative finance. Half my cars are bought on creative finance. So yes, absolutely massive opportunity. I would say majority of the deals you will see that will be on the MLS today in creative finance, where the agents are representing somebody open to seller finance, are going to be in the luxury market because the seller wants a higher purchase price. And that seller also is not hurting for the money. There, I look at seller, seller finance and subject to, or kind of, I look at this this way. Subject to, somebody's needy. They need something. There's something going on. It's a negative situation, needy. And seller finance is greedy. It's needy and greedy. Seller finance is like, I want a high purchase price. I'm willing to give you terms, but I'm not willing to negotiate my price. Tons of luxury homes are like that. Hmm. Interesting. 
ask that for our own personal benefit. If you go on the MLS right now in Phoenix, Arizona, you'll probably find 80 to 90 luxury homes right now listed for seller finance. Any other questions before I hit my no, last two? You sure? Go for it, yes. Okay. Is there anything that any questions I haven't asked you that you think you that would benefit our audience right now? I know that's kind of a broad thing, but anything that you think I my I'll tell you my next two after this so that maybe they play into it, but you have some sort of course, you have some sort of group. Some how can people learn more? Like I need to know where we can learn more. Go to my YouTube channel. I've got 1300 videos on there. We've spent two and a half million dollars over three years editing producing, flying around the country, visiting my properties. Like I've got one right now, the 256 unit multifamily deal I bought in Springfield, Illinois. I went and made 26 YouTube videos about it on site, walked around the property. How did I buy the deal? Where did it come from? What am I going to do with it? Why was the seller willing to give this to me? Where, where, how did I negotiate? Blah, 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 blah. What's my long-term? All of those videos I'm putting on a 26 video playlist, like breaking it all down for people. So don't pay me. Don't go to don't don't go to my mentorship. Go to my YouTube channel. My YouTube channel. If if you can't learn how to do a deal on my YouTube channel, then I have done something wrong. I like it. Okay. Now my next one is. Oh, so it has there. Is there anything else that we that I should have asked you? It, we'll blame it on Pete. That Pete should have asked you. Yeah, that I should have asked you. I would. You know, this is an interesting thing. I because people ask me. Most common question I get is how do I get started? Okay, and then the next common question I get is how can I like stay consistent and. In both answers, the answer is always, I need to be around other people that are doing it. I call it the energy of activity. And for me, I, I attribute all of my success to standing next to somebody else that was successful because I'm nothing but a parrot. I'm nothing but a chameleon. I blend into my surroundings. And I know it doesn't sound like it right now because I'm confident, I'm cocky, I'm this, that, and the other, but it's because I'm probably hanging out with some confident and cocky human beings nowadays, right? But Everything I learned came from somebody else. Everything I succeeded at came from, some, came from somebody else guiding me, directing me, push, pushing me down that path. So what I would do is I would make sure that I get around the energy of activity and I would take, basically, I would look at my calendar and I'd say, when was the last time I hung out with, spent any time with, talked to anybody that was successful? And look at your calendar, go to the last 30 days, go to the next 30 days and go, when am I? And you will show the recipe of your success right there. And it sounds stupid. It sounds cliche. It sounds hokey, but I can tell you right now, all I'm trying to do, I've learned this one thing. I've never made a dollar without another human being involved. Interesting. Never. And I've never made another, I've never met anybody else that's ever made a dollar without another human being somehow involved. So if that is a fact that I need other human beings in my world in order for me to make money, then what I should be doing is focusing on the amplification of higher quality human beings in my life. That's it. And you will become successful. Yeah. I like it. I think that's a, that's a good so closing. True. Yeah. I mean, you are who you hang out with. Like that's one of our big things. You know, if you're around a lot of negative, uninspiring people, you will become negative and uninspiring. That's right. just, I, I think that's like undisputable, but I like that you kind of did the opposite side, whereas be around the positive, you know what I mean? Like you're going to, as opposed to saying the negative. So mm -hmm. I think that's a great place to stop. My last question is where can they find you? Um, you said YouTube, you're big there, Instagram, what are, do you have a handle across the same channel? Just Pace Morby. I've got one of those names. that's like, you know, somewhat um, easy to be by myself. Pace Morby, uh, you know, Jamil, you, you guys had another episode with Jamil, him and I are on a TV show on A&E, which is cool. But I think mo more people are going to get, get a lot more value on my YouTube channel than they will anywhere else because I, you know, visit sellers. I talk to agents. I 
um, negotiate deals. I'll show people how to fill out contracts. I do all of those types of things. The one thing that you'll lack on a YouTube channel is you'll lack community, right? You'll lack connection to another human being. So it's like, yeah, you can read books, you can go to seminars, you can do all these kind of things and watch YouTube videos, but at some point you have to be around other human beings. And so um, my big challenge for your audience is get around other people, whether it's joining a mentorship where other people are in there or uh, getting into a Facebook group and meeting people in your local area to go have lunch with and go to meetups and that kind of stuff. And it's going to sound really harsh, but you got to replace your friends that you had from yesterday with your friends that you need tomorrow. And you have to work really, really hard on that. And remember that you are your income is the average of the five other people's income around you. And I've never seen it other, any other way. Take your five closest friends, whether it's your dad, your uncle, your brother, your this, your football mate, your classmates, your whatever, and you take their income and you add them all, five people up, you divide it by five and you'll come up with what your income is. It's the weirdest thing, but it comes out to like, whoa, man, that's like a thousand dollars off of exactly what I'm making right now. So that's a huge thing. Community, education and community. Yeah. Yeah. And your community, by the way, is pretty awesome you know, in, in Facebook, your Facebook group. So if you're at all interested in this side of things, definitely go check that I'm out. I'm a member. Yes. I joined. Yes. I encouraged her to I'm join. I'm not really a I Facebook love, person I anymore. So yeah. You've got people posting uh -huh. sub two and creative finance deals. I think that's a really cool. Yeah. We've, it's a, it's a big, it's a big Facebook group. 71,000 people are in there, I think today. And we do a big challenge every month. It's three day challenge. It's completely free. My students come in and help non-students um, learn how to do deals. And it's a way for my students to, uh, I'm encouraging them to practice what they preach on people that, you know, can't join a mentorship just now or say, hey, plug me in. I'll, I'll even work for your business for free. And it gives uh, the ability for people to connect with each other all over the country. And so we usually get like 7,000 people to show up to these challenges for three days. Once 7,000 people. That's to even think about that. Are they all on a Zoom call? So yeah, we've, we've done a lot on Zoom calls. We did one last October that was out in the field where we would get out and we would knock doors with people. We don't do a knocking door challenge anymore, but people in the community are like, let's do a, doc, a knocking door challenge. I'm like, all right, but we're going to take you out in the field. <laughs> so we took that one out in the field, but for the most part, they're on, they're on Zoom and then we're doing it side by side. So it's kind of like monkey see, monkey do. All right, I just did this. Now everybody has to do this. Okay. I'm going to do this now. I'm going to pause and give everybody 15 minutes to catch up and do this thing. And then they have to click this button that says, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it. And so we're following people through. And we won, a, we, we earned a Guinness World Record for the most amount of offers submitted in one day from one group. It was like <laughs> awesome. 1,932 offers were submitted in one day. And we had a Guinness Book World Record official in the challenge with us and watched all these offers get sent out. It was really, really cool. Man, you're a good marketer. I, I got to learn a lot from you. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, it, it's really good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyhow, uh, loved having you on the show today. You brought the heat, as I guess you could say. Uh, really, <laughs> really good stuff. Heather, you wouldn't use that term, right? No, I just, I'm just here for, to laugh at your jokes. Man. I've got some good ones. <laughs> well, that was seriously awesome, though. Learned a lot. I'm really excited. I'm going to check out your channel more on YouTube. And I'm already in the Facebook group. And I think that just starting with those two things and Instagram, I'll follow you on Instagram. I think that that's where people are going to get the most benefit. And really, you mentioned a couple systems, too. So I, I was taking mental notes that you said was, you know, ones that you've created. So I'm excited to see that. And I think that'll help a lot of other people, too. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on with us. And so excited. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much. Peace. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're ready to start turning profit yourself, 
visit our website at turningprofit.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please help spread the word by sharing it with a friend. See you on the next episode.